Well, let me invite you to get your Bibles. We are in the book of Acts, and um, we are uh, just starting this series in the book of Acts. And, um, uh, you know, I have not preached through Acts. I have preached from Acts, but there's something about actually going through it that changes some things in how you look at a book. And um, I think that God is going to really challenge us in many ways through this book. Let me invite you to stand. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And uh, we certainly are going to need God's help and wisdom um, for uh, our understanding of this text. But let's read it together. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each, each of us in, a, in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Lord, help us today. As we come to this incredibly and extremely important text in your word. Lord, help us see that this is so foundational to who we are as a church, that we would not just breeze through and listen casually, Lord, but we would, we would pay attention, not just to the, the, the words that are coming out of your speaker today, Lord, but as the Spirit is at work through the word, uh, challenging us and, and, and clarifying things for, for us and giving us understanding, Lord, because we desperately need to know what you are revealing here. Lord, our lives um, are, are dependent on this. Our church is dependent on this. And our opportunity for ministry is dependent on this, Lord. So what we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we, uh, what we don't have, Lord, would you give us? And allow me, Lord, to be your messenger. Lord, to faithfully proclaim your truth this morning, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this is the fourth sermon from the book of Acts. And that has been purposeful because what Luke has been doing in his book is laying some foundational principles so that we can understand what is taking place here in chapter 2. And then, of course, through the rest of the book of Acts. In verses 1 through 5, Luke wants us to be sure that it is Jesus that is at the heart of the book of Acts. Not the apostles, not the Holy Spirit, not the church, although all three of those are important and significant aspects of the book of Acts. Luke wants us to see that it is the ascended Jesus, that he is the central focus and is driving all the events of the book of Acts. Then we looked at Uh, Verses 6 through 11. If you remember, what we found there was Luke wants us to see the global mission of the apostles. This is where the church was going to go. They're not just to reach the Jews, but they're to move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. So this is a global mission that will reach out to both Jew and Gentile alike. In verses 12 through 26, which we looked at last week, What we saw there ultimately was the the need for the 12 to be restored 
Why? Because the, 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 the apostles are the foundational witness that the church is built upon. And we saw their, their obedience. We saw their, uh, their uniting together in fellowship and in prayer. And we saw there that the scriptures had to be fulfilled by the replacing Judas with Matthias, ultimately. So the twelve are now gathered together. They're settled. We have that group. And this is all setting us up for chapter 2 and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now I want you to notice the emphasis in this chapter on heaven. There's just a number of times where it's brought up. In chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, we find Jesus ascending into heaven. In chapter 2, verse 2, there's a sudden sound coming from heaven. In verse 5, there's devout men from every nation under heaven. In verse 19, uh, he says, I will show wonders in the heavens above And so, rightfully, we can say that all heaven is breaking loose in this text. There's something happening from heaven that's coming down, that's impacting the world. It's the promise of the Father. It's the Holy Spirit being poured out and filling and empowering the apostles to proclaim the mighty works of God. And so now in chapter 2, we need to recognize that if we're going to understand it best... We should take it as a whole, but that's going to be one long sermon, right? Not going to do that today, but there's there's a need for us maybe to kind of get the structure of chapter 2, to see how it works together. Verses 1 through 13 really show us the event of Pentecost, right, where the Holy Spirit is poured out. And then verses 14 through 36, we have Peter's sermon for Pentecost. Now, it's a three-point sermon, and he quotes three Old Testament passages of Scripture. We'll leave that for next week. And then finally, in verses 37 through 47, we find the response of Pentecost, where the people are pierced to the heart and ask, what shall we do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we see this ingathering and establishing of Christ's church. It's just a wonderful story for us. But this is foundational. This is essential for us in understanding what God wants us to be like and really how the Holy Spirit comes and gives us power for ministry. So we move now to our text with that backdrop behind us. And we want to come to our text this morning and we want to answer the question that we find in verse 12. And this is the question that the Jews are asking themselves. They say, what does this mean? What does Pentecost mean? What does it mean for the church throughout history? What does it mean for Gateway and any other local church? What does it mean for you or for any other believer? What does it mean? But I want to begin with a rather provocative but clarifying statement. We here at Gateway are a Pentecostal Church. Now, don't worry. I'm not advocating a denominal change, a denominational change. I'm not uh, saying that we need to become Pentecostals. No, we would have great disagreement with the Pentecostal beliefs, the denominational beliefs, especially the beliefs regarding this very text and how they would approach it, in particular, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. But we're not going to run away from embracing what is true. And always has been true about God's church. It is distinctly Pentecostal. Meaning we believe that what happened at Pentecost is essential to who we are as God's church. We're a Pentecostal church. Let me add to that a few more of these. We are a Catholic church. You're like, oh, no, what are you saying, Pastor Roger? Are we moving now to to join with the, the Catholic religion? No, don't panic. The word Catholic is a word that means universal. And if we're going to be God's true church, we recognize then the presence of the church universal. That's why we interact with people in Bolivia. That's why we interact with people in Austria and Ukraine. Why? Because that is the church universal. 
fleshed out in local bodies of believers. So we believe in the Catholic Church. We are an apostolic church. A particular family here today will be like, oh, Pastor Rod, don't say that. But we need to say that. Why? Because as an apostolic church, we believe that the witness of the apostles is the foundation for us as a church. In fact, every true church believes the apostolic witness, and therefore they're an apostolic church. We're a Baptist church. You say, okay, Pastor Rod, you're getting closer now. Well, any true church, very few denominations out there don't practice baptism. They see baptism as a necessary indicator, a necessary sign, a necessary, uh, I would say, ritual that people have to go through to declare that they are God's children. So we're a Baptist church. We're certainly a Bible church. It's in our name, Pastor Rod. We know that we're a Bible church. Well, every true church should be a Bible church. But not all churches necessarily approach the Bible in the same way. Some use the Bible, but not necessarily to say what God says, but to say what they want to say, because they use it however they want. So just having the Bible is not the issue. But being committed to proclaiming the Bible as God's word is the issue. We are a Bible church. We're also a brethren church. And some of you may have grown up in the brethren you know, community. And the emphasis there is that brothers and sisters in Christ working together as the church. Look, we love one another. We love brothers and sisters in Christ. Every true church sees that as something that is, that is important. We're a charismatic church. Okay, Pastor, you've really gone off the deep end. Well, not so. Because the whole idea of charismata is to be using the gifts that God has given us for his glory for the building up and the edification of the church. And finally, we're we're a neighborhood church or a community church. Why? Because we actually do care about the neighborhood. We do care about the community. God has placed us here to be a witness in this particular area. Now, my point in saying all this is that some of those terms have been embraced by Christian denominations, many of which we would seriously uh, be in disagreement with about theological matters. We must, reje- we, we must not reject those words because other people have wrenched them to mean something else. We must recapture them because they are true for us. And we must make sure that we define them carefully so that we can say, this is what the true church looks like. Let me give you an example. When you drive around in this area and you see a rainbow flag... It represents something contemporary and cultural, right? The LGBTQ flag, which, of course, the rainbow's changing, you know, every few months. And we can't say, okay, well, then they've got the rainbow. It's like, no, 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 no. There is a biblical truth. We don't run away from the rainbow. We say, no, we are going to maintain the rainbow for what it truly is, God's promise to us. So my my point here is to say, don't be panicked over these terms, but let's make sure that we recapture them and we understand why they're being used and what's important about them because we are all of these churches together. Any true church is going to embrace all of those titles that I have mentioned. All right? So we want to recapture this idea of being a Pentecostal church. And by that, I do not mean you know, the kind of craziness that you see in the denominational Pentecostal church. But what I mean by that is what we have right here. Now, what does Pentecostal mean? I would suggest to you that this text is making the following argument. That Pentecost is the ushering in of a new era whereby the Holy Spirit establishes the church and empowers all believers to boldly proclaim the mighty works of God so that people will be saved. Let me say that again. Pentecost is the ushering in of a new era whereby the Holy Spirit establishes the church and empowers all believers to boldly proclaim the mighty works of God so that people will be saved. Now, friends, that's that's a true church. That is what God has called us to be. Now, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, the greater emphasis is on a 
come and see approach to proclaiming the mighty works of God. I mean, Israel is established as a kingdom, and as you saw in the book of Exodus, God does all this stuff that he may be known. Look at what's happening to my people. Other people around are going to see that. They're going to come, and they're going to worship. Come and see. In the New Testament, the greater emphasis is on go and tell as an evangelistic endeavor. So there's a shift in approach. There's a shift in the church that takes place here. So this morning, we'll consider our text under two headings, and they'll move us to answering that question of what is, what does it mean to be a Pentecostal church? Um, and then as we finish, we'll, we'll finish up with a few concluding thoughts that will be gleaned from our text here. The release of Pentecost and the reaction to Pentecost. Let's consider, first of all, the release of Pentecost. Look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And Luke wants us to see that the coming of the Holy Spirit took place on a specific day and based on what we read in verse 9, a specific time. Clarifies that in verse 15. The specific time was 9 o'clock in the morning. This is when they're actually speaking in tongues and people can hear them. But it comes on a specific day. It's Pentecost. Literally, that means the 50th part. And it refers to a harvest festival known as the Feast of Weeks that takes place 50 days after Passover. And so the the, the way the timing is working here, this is about, there was 40 days after Jesus um, was, was interacting with the, the, the disciples and the followers there. Remember, he was teaching them about the kingdom. And then there was about 10 days then that they were waiting in the upper room for, for him to come. So just thinking about the, the timing there is important and helpful. Now, it says here that they, we can presume here, the 120 were all gathered in one place. It makes sense that they were all still in the upper room. And we have to imagine, again, one of these Middle Eastern houses that has a, you know, the, whole, the whole roof can, can be made into a, into a room and handle 120 people. We talked about this last week. Can you imagine having 120 people in your home? All right? That's a lot of people to feed, a lot of people to care for. It's a lot of hors d'oeuvres, right? It's a lot of drinks. But that's where they were. They were praying. They were waiting for the promise of the Spirit. But their waiting was to come to a very sudden, loud, powerful, and miraculous end. They've been praying as they waited for God and his promise to come, but nothing could have prepared them for the sudden nature of what would follow. God is giving them three signs, divine activities, that will give evidence that the Spirit has come from heaven to fill all who are gathered for ministry both the 12 as well as the rest of the 120. And Jesus has promised this in chapter 24 and verse 49, as well as earlier in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But I want you to notice here that these evidence, there's three of them. First of all, there is an audible evidence. It's the sound. And we want to read God's word carefully here. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It was a sound, but not a normal sound. A sound like a a mighty, violent, rushing wind. Now, we here on the West Coast, you know, we worry about earthquakes, fires. But if you live in the Southeast, boy, it's just like hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those storms. I mean, they are powerful and they are noisy. And maybe you've, maybe you've stood behind or been close nearby where an, a jet engine airplane is getting ready to take off. And it, it, its engines are going and it starts to, to move. And it's just like, it is loud. And there's lots of wind, but it's loud. I and mean, it's just rushing, noisy, powerful wind. Now, just imagine those pictures. Imagine a, a hurricane or a tornado and, and the, the, the power and the, the, the sound and the noise. 
that would be taking place. This is what's happening here, except it's not. Let me explain what I'm saying. Go back to that verse. It says, a sound what? Like a mighty rushing wind. So you have the sound with all, without all the violence and the wind. So the sound is the loud, violent noise. This filled the house where they were assembled. And they alone received the promised baptism with the Holy Spirit to mark the uniting and the beginning of the church. It must have been a shocking experience. Clearly, this is no ordinary moment in the history of the church. The other thing to note here is that both in Hebrew and Greek, the words for wind and spirit are the same. And therefore, it's teaching us something about the nature of the Holy Spirit. Although you can't see him, he is present and he is powerful, accomplishing his purposes. So there's this sound. Secondly, after the audible evidence, there's visual evidence. Verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them. See, they, they, they were looking up to, to heaven, looking up in these, these tongues, these these lights that are yellow and red and blue like tongues coming down together. It says, and then they divided and settled on all of them. There's a visual experience that's taking place here. But again, I want you to notice, it says, and divided tongues as of fire. This is important. There wasn't fire present, but there was there were tongues that, looked like fire, okay? And again, this is, this is symbolic language because fire is emphasizing God's presence, all right? The, the sound and the, the wind is really emphasizing the spirit and the coming of the spirit. Now imagine all the noise of the hurricane, but with none of the effects. Imagine the sight of something that looks like fire, but with no heat, and separating out into individual tongues that come to rest on each one of the gathered believers. Again, it must have been a shocking, powerful experience. So this is all happening now in the house. Yet what we need to see here is that the key impact of the release of the Holy Spirit is not the visual or even the audible, although they're both important, but it is the oral ultimately. And by implication, the global. It is not the sound of the violent wind or the tongues that look like fire that is of utmost importance in this text. It's what happens next. And look, what we see here is the oral evidence. They spoke in tongues. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So these other tongues are not unknown languages or spiritual languages as many Pentecostals, apostolic or charismatic churches would claim. The text won't allow for that interpretation for these are known languages as we will see in just a few minutes. If they're unknown languages, then the miracle of Pentecost isn't a miracle after all. But note, all of these manifestations, all of these evidences, all of these divine effects find their source in the Spirit of God. We're told they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We're told the Spirit gave them utterance. Isn't that what Jesus had promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will produce power. Now, I want to just mention a distinction that we need to make between what is known as the, the baptism uh, with the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. This is important because you hear these words kind of, or phrases thrown around, and there is a distinction between the, true, the, the, the two, and they're very important distinctions. So first, let's consider the baptism with the Spirit. I put a definition up there. I'll read it. The baptism of the Spirit is a one-time, sovereign, and permanent act of God whereby he takes the repentant believer at the moment of conversion and places them in the body of Christ. 
See, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. The idea of baptized, it means to, to, to submerge. In, in this context, it is to embrace, it is to unite. So when the Holy Spirit comes down and it says, this, it comes down with, as this sound, he fills the room, we're told. Everyone in that room now is 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 now been baptized into this body. There is the establishment of the the church with the coming presence of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Again, we've been submerged into Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. So in other words, at the moment of your conversion, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Being filled with the Spirit, however, is an experience for the believer that is to be continuous. It is the constant pursuit, should be the constant pursuit of every believer. It means to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, we read the following. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what Paul is doing there is using the example of alcohol being the agent that controls you toward that debauchery as an illustration to say, no, 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 you need the Holy Spirit to control you. Now, he's not saying... Oh, have the Holy Spirit control you so that you look like you're drunk. The point of the illustration is to say, in this one, the alcohol controls the individual, but you, as God's children, must be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So it's an issue of control. That's the key to understanding this. So if we have here the baptism with the Holy Spirit, then is to be baptized into the body of Christ that happened there at Pentecost, All that were present basically established the church. Secondly, we're going to find those who are filled with the Holy Spirit have been then empowered for ministry. In particular, we'll find here for word ministry. So now, in the book of Acts, we see Peter as well as other people who had already been filled with the Holy Spirit are again filled with the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 4, verse 8 and verse Uh, Also, verse 31, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders and so on. And the point I'm just simply trying to make here is that the filling of the Spirit is something that has our purpose. The Spirit comes upon you. He grants you the power to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, once a person becomes a believer by being baptized in the body of Christ, they are now empowered to yield themselves continually to the control of the Spirit. Therefore, Walking in the Spirit or to be led by the Spirit is not some mystical feeling or subjective nudging or prompting, but the behavior and activity of a true believer who has yielded to the Spirit's control over their lives to be obedient to God's breathed out word, which then produces what we know as the fruit of the Spirit. So friends, the goal of and the evidence for being filled with the Spirit is not a stirred up and an emotionally charged congregation. You talk to some people, how was church today? It's like, oh man, the Holy Spirit was really present today. Well, I know he was present, but how was church today? Because they're measuring the presence of the Holy Spirit based on how great the band was, what what the atmosphere was like. That is not being filled with the Spirit. That's not a measure of that. It's not either to be slain in the Spirit or to speak in tongues or to shake uncontrollably under the Spirit's power or to to hoot and holler under the Spirit or to bark like a dog in the Spirit, which was happening a couple of decades ago. These are just some of the many foolish, foolishly believed manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power and presence. No, the goal of being filled with the Spirit is obedience to the Word of God a rightful application of the word of God, faithful proclamation of the word of God. And the evidence of being filled with the spirit is a life of obedience, comfort, contentment, confidence, boldness, worship, submissiveness, love, faithfulness, and eagerness for Christian ministry and service to flourish. 
So friends, we, we, we need the clarity of making the distinction between being baptized with, being filled with, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, as well as the fruit of the Spirit. And unfortunately, much of our Christian culture is very confused with these issues and functions in a very mystical way with these issues, not in a way that is clearly led, laid out for us in the Scriptures. Now in Acts, the filling of the Spirit was given primarily for the purpose of the proclamation of the Word of God. Certainly in our text, that is true. And that is what we see taking place here. The sign of the Spirit's coming is the violent sound that fills the room. The sign of the Spirit's presence is the tongues that look like fire, fire symbolizing God's presence. But the primary evidence of the Spirit's coming was that all who were present were speaking in various tongues, known languages. Now, just a quick aside. For some people, um, maybe they've grown up in a church where, where, where modalism is, is the function. They kind of see the, you, you deal with God the Father in the Old Testament, you deal with Jesus in the Gospels, and, and then from the Gospels on, you have, you're dealing with, with the Holy Spirit. We've kind of separated uh, the, the Trinity into those three areas, and that's a, that's a faulty view of the, of the heretical view of the Trinity. But practically speaking, we often kind of have a confused idea of how the Holy Spirit works before Pentecost. <laughs> and I just want to just make sure that we understand, first of all, that the, the, the Holy Spirit has been active in presence all throughout our record of Scripture. In fact, if you want to, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. I just want to anchor this for you. He was there at creation. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness fell over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He's always been there. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't just arrive at Pentecost. He has always been around. Secondly, we see in the Old Testament that he comes upon various individuals in the Old Testament, empowering them for specific kinds of, uh, of, of objectives, right? You have Samson, um, you have uh, Gideon, you have Jephthah, you have Saul, you have David. It says here uh, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Holy Spirit comes and fills to control those individuals, right? And then, as we understand that in order for conversion to take place, in order for regeneration to take place, that the Holy Spirit must be present because he is central to the conversion process. Now, we don't have that necessarily specifically laid out in the Old Testament, but in our understanding of how do Old Testament saints get saved, it's not by their works, is by putting their trust in the promise, looking ahead to the Messiah, to Christ's coming, and the conversion that takes place in their heart must take place by virtue of the Holy Spirit's activity in regeneration. So we want to make sure that we understand this is not like, oh, we've never seen the Holy Spirit before, and all of a sudden he's coming. He has already been present, but hear this. In Acts 2, he comes in a new and fresh way to give birth to the body of Christ and to empower those gathered believers for ministry. So this is, I'm going to say, an addition. This is a new way that the Holy Spirit is being fleshed out. He's been poured out on the church, uniting the church together and, and fueling the church then for ministry. So this is the release of Pentecost, and it's essential for us to understand if we're going to be God's church and if you're going to be a follower of Christ. Secondly, I want you to notice the reaction to Pentecost. So what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon the 120 disciples gathered in the upper room? Well, there's the hearing of the violent sound. There's the watching the fire of tongues resting on their heads and speaking in various languages unknown to them. And that's what Verses 5 through 13 reveal the reaction then of the Jews to the miraculous, uh, the miracles, I should say, of Pentecost. Now, the question here is who's gathered? Who's gathered? Well, we're told in the text there that they are, first of all, devout Jews, living in Jerusalem, dwelling in Jerusalem, 
Uh, the idea here is that some might be actually from Jerusalem, but some are actually staying in Jerusalem. Well, why is that? Well, this is Pentecost. And Pentecost was one of three pilgrim festivals. And so there were Jews from all over the place who had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. In fact, Josephus, um, the Jewish historian from 37 to 100 AD, said that the population of Jerusalem went from about uh, 150,000 to over 1 million at the Feast of Pentecost. I mean, you talk about a migration. You talk about trying to find a place to stay. So is it any surprise that God in his providence is choosing this day to pour out his spirit? So there's devout Jews. But notice next, these are devout Jews from every nation under heaven. And this expression, every nation under heaven, is idiomatic and ideas from, from many lands. They're from, from all over the place. In particular, from all over the place where the Jews had been dispersed to. Okay? Now the list that we're given here takes us from the east to west, to the north to the south, and even from island people to desert people. The list, uh, and then thinking in today's terms geographically, moves from the Middle East, where we have the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, and the Mesopotamians, to Turkey, where there's Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, to Africa, Egypt, and Libya, and then Judea and Rome, and then Crete, which would be the island Arabia, which would be the desert territory. And this group is made up of both ethnic Jews as well as Gentile Jews, who've be- or Gentiles who've become Jews. They're called the proselytes. Okay? So this is wonderful gathering of Jews in Jerusalem. And what happens then? What do they hear? Let's read carefully here what it says, verse 6. And at this sound, well, what's the sound? The sound that they heard coming from the house. The multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So this is, first of all, what do they hear? They hear the sound. And it's the sound that draws their attention to the disciples. It's the the sound that gathers the crowd around the house. But there's something more that shocks them. They're hearing the spirit-filled believers speaking in their own native languages. Notice what they say. Are not these, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? These two questions are very interesting. First of all, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? The question is, is this a pejorative statement? I think likely it is a pejorative statement. In other words, it's kind of a a degrading statement why the Galileans are kind of considered the unsophisticated, uneducated, um, the ignorant people who live up there in Galilee. Remember, they're in Jerusalem, the, the, the center of, of wisdom and knowledge and sophistication, right? But these Galileans, they're, out, they're country folk, right? Is it because when they spoke, they spoke with a Galilean accent, the Galileans were known to have difficulty with guttural sounds. It would be something like someone from the deep south who normally speaks with a drawl and uses strange terminology suddenly speaking proper English. Let me try and paint a picture for you. When they would normally be saying, how are y'all doing this morning? I know you're fixing to have some grits and gravy for breakfast, but, but I'm here to tell you about Jesus. Rather than doing that, they're saying, Good day, chaps. I'd like to share some good news with you about the Messiah who's come. You see, there's something that didn't happen. Or maybe we want to use a kind of a California terms, right? There's the surfer dude. Hey, dudes, right? There's something about where they're from. There's something about their dialect here and how they're speaking that these Jews are listening. and They're saying, wait a second. What is going on here? Notice the second part. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, literally, from where we are born? Now, one of the things that we don't quite comprehend living in the United States, we think of, of the dialects as kind of being, well, there's, the, there's the, the New York kind of dialect, right? There's the yeah, Midwest dialect, which is kind of, you know, nasally. And then there's the the Valley Girl dialect, right? There's that. So we have these general kind of areas. 
But do you realize when I was growing up in England, you would, you would travel 10 miles to another village and there would be kind of like a, a, a dialect change. Why? Because people didn't travel as much. We are so used to traveling that we kind of read that back into the text. People typically didn't travel that much if they didn't have to. They stayed in their villages and they used words that the villagers knew and they they had expressions that the villagers understood and they had dialects that came out of those villages. So you could literally say, oh, I know you're from such and such village and that village is only 10 miles away. We don't have that here. So when they say we are not only hearing them speak, but we're hearing them speak in our native language, this was the shock for them. So friends, try to imagine the scene. A sound so loud in the city of Jerusalem that draws a crowd to a home. And when they arrive, they hear an assembly of spirit-filled Galileans speaking in over 15 languages at least. And for the Galileans, for, the, for these followers of Christ, these are not languages that they knew. But this is the Holy Spirit now who is giving them utterance. Notice, third, they hear the sound, they hear the languages, but they also hear the gospel. And the gospel is expressed for us in this term. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is the miracle of Pentecost, friends. The Holy Spirit had come baptizing them together to be the church of Jesus Christ and filling them so that they were speaking in the dialects of each of the Jews present in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Now we need to be careful here because the the Pentecostals and the Charismatics and the Apostolic crowd will say that the miracle here is a miracle of hearing. That these apostles spoke and they spoke, whatever, but the miracle now is on the ears of the people that were listening. But that's not what the text says. And I want to be particular, I want to be careful. Look at verse 4, because we need to see this. It is the Spirit that gave them utterance. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's the Spirit now that is giving them utterance. In other words, that the utterance is the Spirit Act. It's the miraculous act here that's going on. So not the ears. These other tongues then were the languages or the dialects of all the Jews who had come to Jerusalem to worship. And the content of what the believers were, were speaking in their language was the gospel, the mighty works of God. Now, what is meant by the mighty works of God? Well, that's, that's a Jewish expression that we find a couple of times in the Old Testament. But it really is going back into the scriptures that they had, saying, this is what God has done. And I'm sure what they were doing was giving portions or maybe you know, reflecting what Jesus Christ had taught them. If you remember Luke chapter 24, where he goes back through the Old Testament Right? Moses, Psalms, and the prophets, and, and shows them about himself, and ultimately bringing that from then the scriptures to what happened to Jesus on the cross, where he was, you know, he, he died, he was buried, and he rose again, he ascended into heaven. These are the mighty works of God, and they were, they were being told this in their own languages. Now, what we hear, if, and if you look at verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, that these mighty works are pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ because we read in Peter's sermon here, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see what he's doing there is he's, he's re- reaching back in the Old Testament saying this is, this is Jesus, this, he is the Messiah, he is the one. All right. So they're, they're hearing the sound They're hearing the languages, but then we move to the content of what is happening with the languages, and it is the gospel. Now the question is, how do they respond? And there's five words in this text that help us see how they respond, but I think there's three helpful categories, because some of these words can be kind of put together um, uh, under one heading. And and so we're going to begin here. How do they respond to these mighty works and to what they're hearing, what they're experiencing. First of all, 
one, many are searching. Many are searching. It says that they are bewildered because they were hearing the disciples speak in their own languages. It's, it's a word that means to be confused. It's actually translated a little later as perplexed in verse 12. They're amazed, they're astonished, again, because they're hearing them speak in their own native languages. That's a key word, they're native, they're dialects. This is powerful stuff. Therefore, we see confusion and amazement together. And with all of these responses, they were searching and asking questions, right? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? What does this mean? And friends, the truth of the matter is that the gospel bewilders and confuses many people. You can talk to someone about the gospel and they'll be kind of looking at you like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It It doesn't register. It doesn't connect. They don't understand their sinfulness and their alienation from God. They don't see their need for a savior. They don't quite comprehend why a man 2,000 years ago could do anything for them today. But friends, it is God who is in the business of drawing people to himself. It is God who is at work when the word of God is proclaimed by his people. We're simply the vehicles through which the spirit of God works. And it is God who flips the switch. It it is God who allows the penny to drop in the heart of the person. And they begin to ask questions. They begin to want to discuss more. They begin to to begin to to, to be eager about, about growing in an awareness of what this is all about. They want to be taught. And friends, there are many who are searching. There are many who are on that journey. We must see that. Secondly, there are some who are mocking They look at all the evidence before them with all that is happening, right? They're they're seeing the same thing. They're hearing the same thing. With all the evidence before them, they could only respond by mocking what they did not understand. Ah, they're all filled with new wine. They're all drunk. That's what's going on here. So wait a second. All these Jews around you are hearing in their own language preaching about the mighty works of God and your response is to say they must all be drunk. You, I mean, you've seen the foolishness of that response and this is what happens. This is, this is what happens when, when people do not want to believe what is right before them. Rather than deal with the facts, they choose instead to attack the people. And if you look at verse 15, Peter brushes aside their claim saying, These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Now, friends, it's worth noting that there will always be those who mock at the truth of the gospel, right? They just don't want to listen or even take it seriously. So they turn to mockery because they don't really know how to deal with the truth that is before them. And so they'll turn and act Toward you. Mockery is a tool to make you feel small and foolish for what you're doing and for what you believe. That's the goal of it. And so that that person then doesn't have to deal with the truth that you are presenting. And we see it a number of times. I I was reminded of in the Old Testament where uh, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and they're building the walls, right? And the walls are getting built up. He rouses the people and they're actively at work building the walls. But those who are opposed to it, Three guys, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they kind of gather around. And there's a scene in, in, in chapter 4 of Nehemiah where they're kind of all talking to each other. But they're talking loud enough so other people can hear, you know. And, and Sambalat says to the guys that are near him, and the, the, the Samaritan army is there. Here's what he says. What are these feeble Jews doing? I mean, will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in one day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and, and burn ones at that? And everyone's like, ah, ha, 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 while the Israelites are up there trying to restore things, right? It's a tool to get people discouraged. It's a tool to make them feel small, to make them feel foolish. And then a little later, Tobiah follows up and he chimes in. He says, yes. What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. And now they're all rolling on the floor laughing. These stupid Jews, what are they doing? Mockery. 
not looking at the facts, not looking at the, the mighty act of God bringing these people back. And if we jump into Luke's gospel, we see it also coming out of the lips of Jesus that he will be delivered over the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon, chapter 18, verse 32. And those who are holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Luke says also that Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, we're told that the soldiers mocked him. Mark gives us in his gospel, the chief priests with the scribes mocked Jesus to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. All of this is mockery to to shame and to ridicule and to, to make Jesus look and feel like nothing. And they had no idea who they were speaking to and who they were speaking about. There will always be mockers, friends. Even in the best of times of great revival, there'll always be a mocker around. Just remember that. Third, Many are searching, many are mocking, but there are others who are believing. Peter will go on here and preach a sermon, and after his sermon will notice that there were those who listened to what he says. And many of the crowd here ultimately repent and are added to the church. Notice what happens, chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Did you get that? Those who received the word were baptized. The essential activity of Pentecost is not the sound, the fire, or even the foreign tongues, but it is the power of the Holy Spirit filling the people of God so that they can boldly proclaim the word of God. The end result is that the people repent and believe in Christ. Now hear this, friends. The, 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 the emphasis, the Pentecostal emphasis is not, is not the grand sound. It's not the, the fire on the head. It's not even the tongues. It is the word of God going forward. And how do we know that? Because throughout the book of Acts, well, the word was preached and many were added to the church. The word was preached and many were added to the church. It's the ministry of the word that is the ultimate goal. One commentator helpfully reminds us that even though the Jews, or even though the news of Jesus is imaginably good, unimaginably good, and its messengers strive to make it as plain as day, still the aroma of Christ is the fragrance of life to some and stench to others. I want to leave you with three thoughts as we bring things to a close. Three kind of reflective things on this. This is not the first one, but just understand, there's a lot in this passage that I want to say good people might disagree on. I have friends, um, and I grew up in a home that was Pentecostal charismatic, so I've interacted with this a lot, okay? And here's the first warning, the first point, a warning to be careful. There is a lot of really bad false teaching floating about under the umbrella of Christianity, about the ministry and activity of the Holy Spirit. And although much is well intended, most of it is extremely misguided and is the result of mishandling or misinterpreting the plain sense of the word of God. As I mentioned, I I grew up in, in a charismatic home, I attended Pentecostal churches and charismatic churches until my conversion at age 16. In fact, my my father was a pastor of a charismatic church and then ultimately an Assemblies of God church, which is the Pentecostal church. So I've attended many charismatic services through the years. I've heard many strange interpretations. I've observed many kinds of silly and foolish activity. I have been... uh, I shouldn't say made to feel because I didn't feel that way, but the the people who were saying it basically looked down on me because I didn't have the second blessing. It's like, well, you haven't really arrived yet, and you wouldn't understand this because you're not baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and I'm like, no, I don't need to. Why? Because Scripture 
says I don't need to. So, so this, is, this, is, this is my experience. And my experience is when I sat down with someone who holds this position and I take them to the word of God and, and to show them what it says and to interact and dialogue with them about what it says, what always happens is we shift focus from what the word of God says to their personal experience. And it is then their personal experience that becomes the standard to measure if something is true or not. The response I often get was like, so you saying that me speaking in tongues was not true, that it wasn't right? See, it's a comeback to say, you don't have the right to say this. And it's like, well, based on scripture, it's flawed and you're missing the point. And so it no longer becomes a discussion about scripture. It becomes a discussion about experience. Okay. As such, the central place of the word of, uh, uh, word of God in the life of a believer and the church is eclipsed by the perceived feelings and promptings of the Holy Spirit. So if my experience is really what matters, and they wouldn't say we don't believe in the word of God, but my experience is the measure by which I interpret what's true, what happens then is kind of a shifting away from the word of God to be the source of help and strength and nourishment to what I feel the Holy Spirit is prompting me for today. It's much easier to get up in the morning and say, well, I'm walking with the Spirit. Oh, he, he prompted me to do this, so I'm going to do that. Well, but where's the Word of God in this? See, it's bypassed. It's ignored. And so what ultimately happens then is that the Scriptures, at best, become secondary as a source of truth. Whereas the promptings of the spirit, this experience, the, the, the kind of mystical aspect of it becomes primary. And friends, we have a real problem with that. Because what happens is that the, if the experience clearly is not what scripture conforms to, then scripture must be right. And what you perceive must be wrong. And we must be really, really careful that we don't fall into that trap, friends. So what has happened over time is that people would rather go through life leaning on the perceived Holy Spirit experiences and promptings than take time to learn how to study the word of God that was breathed out by whom? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the one that breathed out the word. This is what happens. It's the word of God or it's the Holy Spirit who speaks to us through his word. Why do we say that? Why? Because 2 Peter 1.21 says this, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, one of the distinct activities of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's church, in the history of God's dealings with Israel, and then in the church, is that he breathes out the very word of God. So if you want to listen to the Spirit, what do you do? You open up the word. And you allow the word then to teach you, to shape you. So to bypass the word might seem like, oh, this is a better way to go. It's like, no, no, no. You're bypassing the truth that is, that is going to help you know what actually is what God wants you to do. So it's a warning, first of all, to be careful. Secondly, I, I want to encourage, encourage you. This is an encouragement to be purposeful. And what we find in our text, first of all, I would say, is, is a reminder to love the church of God. Here we have the beginnings of the church. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. He's baptizing the, the, all the believers there into the body of Christ. Now, just let that sink in. The church is a gathering of baptized Believers, by that I do not mean water baptism, I mean Holy Spirit baptism. You have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. There is no other institution on earth where this can be said to be true. What unites us together as God's people is the Holy Spirit and is the baptism dynamic of the Holy Spirit. We are one in Christ. And that takes place by virtue of the Holy Spirit's activity. So I want to encourage you as you think about that, then you think about, well, then the church maybe is far more than simply the group of people that I gather with. It's a, the very life-breathing, life-giving organism that God has created for us to, um, to, to fellowship with and to unite with and to grow with. 
And the Holy Spirit is working in it all. Secondly, seek to be controlled by the Spirit. Friends, it is possible that with the distorted teaching about the Holy Spirit that we can neglect to allow the Holy Spirit the right to call us to be under his control. But this should be our daily experience. You should get up in the morning and say, Lord, I want to be controlled by your Spirit. I want to be submissive to what you say. I want you to rule and reign in my life. This should be our pursuit every day. The problem is we often stop being controlled by the Spirit, right? And we need to catch ourselves and restore things and allow the Spirit to control our thoughts and our actions. Third, we should always be ready to open our mouth and proclaim the gospel. This is not just for the apostles. Get this. This is for all the believers. So yes, as a pastor, yes, as elders, we might have an office where we carry out the responsibility of teaching God's word. But that is not simply something that is limited to us in a a proclamation way. You preach the word of God to your kids, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your co-workers. This is the church carrying out Pentecostal ministry. And the fourth thing there is be amazed at what God does through your willing ministry. I mean, in this story, isn't it incredible? You have all these Jews that are just like, I mean, they're just like shocked what they're hearing, what is going on here. And then Peter gets up and gives a sermon. And by the end of the day, there are 3,000 who come to faith in Jesus Christ. 120 people gathered. By the end of the day, there's 3,120 people. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to happen here for Gateway. But I am saying that God moves in mighty ways that we do not comprehend. And so do not underestimate the power of the proclaimed word, the power of the gospel, the power of reflecting people to the mighty acts of God and how God will use that and stir that and draw people to himself with that actual ministry. So it's a warning to be careful an encouragement to be purposeful. Finally, it's a challenge to be Pentecostal. I want Gateway to be a Pentecostal church. God wants us to be a Pentecostal church. Friends, Bethlehem was God with us. Calvary was God for us. Pentecost was God in us. So seek to live your life as a baptized, spirit-filled child of God who is always ready and eager to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might repent of their sins and be reconciled to God. That's what it means to be Pentecostal. The Holy Spirit creating us as a church, empowering us now in fresh ways to get out there and to proclaim the good news so that people will come to know Jesus. This is the basic heart of what it means to be the church, a Pentecostal church. Lord, help us today to consider all that has been shared. And Lord, we come from all different, I want to say theological backgrounds, Lord, that Lord, as as we're sitting and listening to this text, Lord, some of us are are coming from a Pentecostal background, some are charismatic, some are Catholic, some are far more conservative Baptist, some are coming from no Christian background whatsoever. And so so even this this whole idea of, of the spirit filling and tongues coming and all this kind of stuff, it just seems weird or we've come at it with some preconceived ideas. Lord, we, we ask that as a result of our time today, that your Holy Spirit would seal things in us, would, would be able to give us clarity and understanding beyond, Lord, what has been said here. That we would see, Lord, how distorted things have gotten in your church and the need to get back to just a, a clear understanding of what the text actually says and how your Holy Spirit as, is at work in us. Lord, we, we know your Holy Spirit is with us today. Not because we're rolling around and jumping around or barking and all that kind of stuff. Lord, we know it. Why? Because your word tells us that he is present with us. And we know that your Holy Spirit 
fuels us for ministry, empowers us for ministry, Lord. We know that. Why? Not because we feel it, Lord, but because we know that you work through your children to accomplish your purposes. So, Lord, help us to, to, to navigate our understanding of the Holy Spirit carefully. And not to, in a sense, set him aside as the forgotten part of the Trinity. But to to revive our understanding, to embrace our understanding, and to submit ourselves, Lord, to his guidance, his care, his control over our lives as he ministers to us through the very word of God. And as the word of God takes root in our hearts and we're meditating on it, and he reminds us of what he said in his word, may we be faithful, Lord, to be obedient to it submissive to it, humble with it, and Lord, seek to glorify you. Lord, help us as a church, help us individually, Lord, to to, to really understand the need for us to be a Pentecostal people. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. I have to tell you as uh, your pastor that I, I have you on my heart all the time. I, I normally do, but it seems in the current situation we're in that um, the burdens that you are all carrying are, 